Well, welcome to church this morning. Good to have you. If you are new with us, I just want to direct your attention. We have cards that look something like this sitting in front of you. We'd love to just get to know you. You could fill out your name, drop in the offering in just a little bit. We promise not to harass you, but we would love to get to know our neighbors and who's worshiping with us. And if you have a prayer request or a comment for the staff or any of those kinds of things, um, that would be great as well. I want to congratulate all of you on surviving the end of the world. Um, I don't know how you prepped for that, but you made it. Uh, Here we are. We're in the post-apocalyptic world now. So if you're joining us new this morning uh, and haven't been with us in December, then this will be news to you. But we are actually wrapping up a four-week series, something that we're calling Advent Conspiracy. It's actually something that uh, several years ago some churches got together. And basically the premise behind it is this. They're rethinking how to celebrate Christmas. And so we've just been talking about the fact that the way we normally celebrate birthdays as we consider the person whose birthday it is that we're celebrating, and we honor that person with it. So we're just rethinking Christmas, and, and it's been a, an incredible series. And this morning is really wrapping this up. It started with worship fully. It all starts with worship, the idea of spending less so that we can give more. And then this morning is the idea of love all. And so we'll be kind of wrapping that up. Now, when I say the word love all, uh, what comes to your mind when you hear love all? Any thoughts come to mind with that? Yeah. Love your enemies. enemies. Okay. How about someone else? What does love all bring bring to mind? Love others who don't love you. you. Okay. Must be the Christmas season where there's a lot of like angry horns blaring and stuff. We have that track going. Okay. For some of us, okay, when when you hear the word love all and you let it, you know, kind of linger in for a second... Um, I think maybe it sounds a little bit like world peace. You know, it's like when someone gets up and says they want world peace. And it's the equivalent of, you know, you have these nebulous hands that are kind of forming a heart around the world. And, and in essence, although world peace and love all sounds nice, it's kind of ooey-gooey and, and people just think, well, that's all good and fine and dandy, but it doesn't really apply. There's a, it doesn't really match real life to love all. And it, and it sounds actually potentially too grand. There's lots of talk about it, but there's no real action or even definition. What does it look like to love all? What does it look like to have world peace? I want you to think of these three people from history. Each of these three people lived great stories. But why? Why do you see these three people and say, wow, they lived great stories? Here's why. It's because they and the rest of the world knew exactly what they wanted. First picture is Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill wanted to defeat Hitler. That's what he was about. Middle picture is Martin Luther King. He wanted racial equality. That's what he fought for. Mother Teresa wanted dignity for the poor. So instead of kind of a warm and fuzzy world peace love all, instead they lived and sometimes died for their convictions, and it changed the world. So here's my question this morning as we ponder Christmas, as we celebrate Christmas, is this. What did Jesus want? Or, to put it in wristband vernacular, it would be this. WDJW. Okay, so some of you like that more, so we'll just leave that one up. So what did Jesus want? Now, this is where it gets fuzzy. Some people that you talk to today would say this. Jesus was a good teacher. Actually, a title that he rejected. He didn't like that that title because it undermined actually what he was about. Some people would call him a prophet. Some would call him a false prophet. Some would say he was, in fact, a historical character, but he was just a regular guy that grew into legend. 
So there's all kinds of fuzziness around what did Jesus want and even who he was. But it wasn't fuzzy to Jesus. And this morning, I just want to unpack a little bit of his great story and how it changed the world. Now, even though oppressing, um, even though opposing oppressive regimes, fighting for racial equality, and caring for the poor are great and noble goals, these were not the primary goals of Jesus Christ. Although I would say he lived and embodied some of those ideals. His primary goal, his primary focus, though, as we think about loving all and what that looks like, is closer to the truth. And the way I want to do this this morning is I want to let Jesus have his own words be heard on the subject. So I'm going to cover these three things. Jesus on why he came. Jesus on what he thought was the most important lessons. And Jesus on how to live. Okay? So Jesus on why he came. We just had this passage read. Some people think it's the football passage because we see it at football games, but it's John 3.16, one of the most famous passages in all of the scriptures. And the second one beyond it, John John 3.17, is really imperative. So this is Jesus talking. He says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So we'd say it this way, Jesus was sent to save. He was given by God as a gift. He was sent on a clear mission. Now, you don't need saving unless there's imminent danger, right? It makes no sense to save someone and need a savior unless there's imminent danger. So that's part of the story. And there's a very clear condition that's given here, and it's the condition of belief. Whoever believes... Now, thinking about the birth of Jesus, history tells us that all of the great and influential people who are alive today are just a couple of generations from being completely forgotten. Even the One Direction guys, okay? Uh, They're going to be gone. I mean, what's amazing is no matter who you think of right now as really powerful, really influential, a real mover and shaker, here's the reality. History's taught us that You just take a couple of generations and push them by. Some of you had trouble identifying Winston Churchill. But those who lived through it would say he he will never be forgotten. He's a friend of the whole world for what he did. So history shows us that. But then there's Jesus of Nazareth. Christmas celebrates his birth. And of all the birthdays of all the great people throughout the ages, his alone is celebrated worldwide some 2,000 years after it happened. It's remarkable. Now, facts without context lose their meaning. Let me give you an an illustration. Going to buy a cup of coffee isn't an adventure unless you're in Syria. Then it becomes a giant adventure, right? Landing an airplane on a runway, not a big deal unless the runway is the Hudson River. Then it becomes a big deal. So you take the details of a story, remove it from the context, and you kind of get a changed and warped meaning of that. Let's think about the details of this historic birth. There was a census by the ruling Romans. There was a 75-mile journey to a hometown. There was a busy inn. There was a stable. There was star. There were shepherds. You see, the thing is, we we can recite the details surrounding the birth and lack the understanding of what's really happening. We can we can know the facts, but remove it from the bigger 
picture of things. Context is what makes the birth of Jesus not just unusual, but miraculous. And when I say miraculous, I mean God-ordained. I mean that God had to intervene to, to cause these events to occur. The number of prophecies that are fulfilled just in the birth of Jesus of Nazareth is startling. The birthplace that he was virgin-born, the family line he would come from, his name, the major news at the time, all of this predicted in great detail hundreds of years before he was born. Startling. Make no mistake that Jesus came on purpose to accomplish a mission to love all, and he stated this crystal clear. Now, what did Jesus really teach? If I were to ask 10 people in this room just what they, what they taught, I might get a sampling of answers. But if you just take a random sampling of 10 different people, you'd get 10 very different answers of what Jesus taught. So, next one, Jesus on what is most important. Uh, some would say this, that he taught on love and forgiveness. Now, that's true. And many quote this. Oftentimes, we quote Jesus to suit our need in the moment, right? He taught on a lot of different things. So in certain points, we say, well, wait a minute. He taught on love and forgiveness. Usually, that's when what? We need some love and forgiveness right then. Now, Jesus also taught about sin and about forgiveness and about salvation and other kinds of themes. It's really good to know what the most important thing is. Do we have any parents of teens in here this morning? Okay. Okay, we have some parents of teens. Parents of teens, listen to me. You've been talking to your teen before, and as you're talking, you're, you're, you're communicating, and all of a sudden, there's just kind of a glassy-eyed look that, that's coming back to you, okay? And what you realize is this. You no longer have your audience, okay? You've, you've completely lost them. Now, A, this could mean that you're an incredibly boring communicator, okay? And all the teens in the room said, amen, right? <laughs> B, it could just be that you've lost your intended audience because, you know, because they weren't able to, to get the message, um, or see, maybe it's all of the above. I'm not sure what exactly. You can leave that for, for the discussion after church. But here's the action item. You're talking along. You've got glassy-eyed teen looking back at you. And then you say this. Wait a minute. Forget everything I've said. Look at me. Bring it right here, okay? Pick up milk on the way home for dinner. Do you have that? Yes. What do you make them do? You make them say it back to you. Pick up milk on the way home for dinner. Forget everything else I said, right? Because you want what? You want the most important thing, and you don't want to have to go back out and get milk before dinner, Right? So Jesus has asked, what is the most important thing of all the things that you've been teaching, walking the countryside, talking about, what's the most important thing? He was asked that by some religious leaders. Here was his answer. Mark chapter 12, when pressed for the most important thing, Jesus answered, the most important is. Notice that he starts with a statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He doesn't even start with something you should do. He starts with a reality. He states a fact. Then he says, verse 30, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. I love they said, what's the most important thing? He answers with two. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus boiled it down to love God and love others. Now notice that he doesn't just say give mental assent to the reality that there is one God. Believe in one God. What does he say? He says, love the Lord your God. That's the most important thing. Not simple assent in your brain. Not just a statement of belief, but love. It implies relationship. There's so much there that we don't have time to unpack this morning, but it's a beautiful command. He says, love the one true God, then love others. If you want to know what loving God is like, 
You get mentored by Jesus. The way you get mentored by Jesus is you read the Gospels. He's left a record for us of, of what it looks like to walk the earth loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. As for the second command of what does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, he told a story one time that, that illustrates this. Now, think about the world peace, love all, kind of ooey-gooey, that doesn't really mean anything um, idea, and then compare it to this illustration, which is so much more specific. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 10. And Luke is a common place to be in for, uh, for the Christmas season. But we're not going to go and, and rehash some of the Christmas details. We'll leave that for another time. Uh, but I, I want to read for you what sometimes is, is called the parable, the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a story about classes of people and neighbors. And what's interesting is we're going to talk about neighbors this morning. You, you may have invited your neighbor. You may be a neighbor of someone in here in this room. I've had a history of living next to some psycho neighbors. Uh, we lived our first place as a married couple. We were at a, um, at a, at a place over on Bascom. And uh, very early on of living there, um, I was welcomed to the neighborhood by my next-door neighbor who came out and chewed me out for really suspicious behavior at 9 o'clock at night. Um, what I was doing was rinsing out my wetsuit. I had been at the beach that day. I was rinsing my wetsuit out. And he came out, and instead of, hi, neighbor, I'm so-and-so, what's your name? Instead, it was chewing me out about, what are you doing out here, and all this kind of stuff. Turns out he was the assistant manager, so it made for just a fun, a fun time there. Um, next, I lived over in Albany Valley, and uh, there's, there was a guy next to us that hadn't been heard from since the 70s. Um, he basically was a, a, a recluse, and he'd been there for a long time, and we couldn't even make contact with this guy. Um, and then the very first contact that we ever had with him was him. Uh, I was in the garage, and I hear him yelling at my five- and three-year-old for picking dead leaves off of a giant tree that hung all over our property. I offered him fruitcake and said, hi, I'm your neighbor, Dave. You know, uh, I didn't really. But, um, but here's, what I, here's what I realized is that God knew that I needed practice, daily practice of what it looked like to love my neighbor. Now, no one in here thinks you're the psycho neighbor, but chances are there's someone in here who you're one of the psycho neighbors. I don't know who you are, but you're here. So we're looking at neighbors and talking about crazy neighbors and that kind of thing. Look at, look at Luke chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 25. It says this. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's a good question. He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, listen to how he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now stop there for a second. Well, Jesus says this, and he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. A question is asked. He gives an answer. Jesus says, you've answered well. Do it, and you'll live. Here's what's interesting. The guy had good theology. He answered well. Jesus points out that it's not just enough to regurgitate the right answer. You have to put feet to it. You have to put action to it. We wouldn't talk about Winston Churchill, Martin Luther King, or Mother Teresa if all they ever did was go around the countryside talking about some things. We talk about them because they lived and embodied those things. But the next question revealed... His heart's true treasure. He asked this in verse 29. But he said, but, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? He asked this important question. Who is my neighbor? But, it, but instead of looking to clarify and saying, Man, I want to do this. I want to obey this. Who are you talking about? Instead, it was looking to justify him. Instead, it was looking to put up boundaries of, How far do I have to go with this? And it revealed his heart's true desire. 
Maybe you're sitting here this morning. I've felt this way so many times. Aren't I doing enough? Is this enough to be doing all that I need to be doing? Jesus goes on to tell this story. He says in verse 30, Jesus replied to the question, Who is my neighbor? He tells a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn to, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay it when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? This guy he was talking to answered and said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Who is my neighbor is a great question. The big question here is, to whom can I be a neighbor? And it really doesn't have a whole lot to do necessarily with geography, citizenship, race. But rather, wherever people need us, there can be neighbors for us to show mercy to. Go and prove yourself to be a neighbor to those in need. You see, people like the lawyer want to discuss neighbor in a general way. Jesus forced him to consider a specific person, a specific individual. Love all gets really nebulous when it's just left as kind of the whole world rather than an individual to go and begin loving. How easy it is to talk about abstract ideals and fail to help solve concrete problems. So who is my neighbor? It's anyone in need. So then the follow-up question is this. Well, just what am I supposed to do with him? We see some extravagant love displayed by the Good Samaritan. If Jesus were answering this at Christmas time, perhaps he would say, Goodwill to all. Maybe that's how he would say it. Now think of the Goodwill store. Maybe maybe what's needed is that we just show some goodwill, right? But goodwill, think about it. What do you take to the goodwill? Stuff you don't want, right? It's someone coming by your door for a canned food drive, and you dig past the, you know, Skaggs Dynamo Hot Chili, which is awesome, and you dig way back to the lentil soup that's got dust on it, or lima beans. Those are, those are my things. And you give those away, right? It's giving, but it's giving something that's leftover, right? It's giving something that, that you don't really miss anyways. In a sense, it's kind of like good riddance. Is that what's talking about with what it means to be a neighbor? Or maybe there's just general consideration and politeness. Whether you're a hiker, a dude in a wheelchair, a frog, or a bicycle, it's just being considerate to people. I don't know where this sign is, but I want to see it someday. Um, The frogs must be getting a terrible rap down there. Now, listen instead to Philippians 2. Here's, here's Here's the picture that Scripture offers. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more important than yourself. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Catch this. With Jesus 
as our model. We are to humbly serve one another. We are to love all. Now, I hope this question is forming in your mind. How on earth can we do that? How on earth can we live what we see on the screen right here? I mean, think about it. Merry Christmas is hard. There's envy, selfishness, conceit, jealousy, and gluttony. And that's just within your own family, right? That's just on Christmas Day. Now, Merry Christmas to all, that's impossible. I mean, it's hard enough to love those who are in your family that you have a bent, probably, to try to work things out with. But Merry Christmas to all is actually impossible. Now, even the Grinch knows this. He was born with a heart two sizes too small, right? The only way to love the who's of Whosville was for a heart change. I mean, this story really is borrowed from the Bible. He didn't need a bigger heart. He needed a whole new heart. And Jesus on how to live, he answers it this way. Jesus answered a Pharisee asking this question. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you want to know how to love all? Do you want to know how to take Merry Christmas, not just beyond your own family, where you find it exceedingly difficult to live out some of the principles that that, that Jesus laid out for us and modeled for us? It's a heart change. To put it a different way, it would say this, that that loving all requires a new birth. Once you see this, it's so freeing. You might ask this question, how can God love me after the mess that I've made of my life? The reality is he came to restore what was broken by becoming broken on our behalf. Maybe you've wondered, how can God use me? Well, he delights in fulfilling his, his mission of loving all through children and through those who are unable without him. How can I possibly live a good life? The reality is you can't, he has, and what you do is you receive that and you walk in the newness of that new life. God in us is what accomplishes the God-sized scope of loving all. So what could God do through children who delight in him by loving all? Just listen to 2 Corinthians 9 for a second. It says this, And God is able... Keep that in mind with all that you're about to hear. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now, there was a certain sadness for me that accompanied the Christmas season every year. And it happened when I watched the Frosty the Snowman Christmas special. I felt so bad because I knew year after year, no matter how you spun the story, Frosty was going to melt. And that just bummed me out. That made me so sad. But now that I look back on it, here's what I think. I think that the melting snowman image is a a spurring on to say, let's enjoy Frosty while he's still frozen. Let's enjoy life. Let's live our life right now. You've been given one life to live. We don't know how long we are for this world. So let that urgency kick you into gear, maybe even awaken you this Christmas season. 
I've said the following things this morning. That Jesus miraculously came to save the world. That Jesus taught that loving God and loving people are the most important things you could possibly give your life to. And thirdly, that being born again into Jesus is the only way to live a life pleasing to God. I pointed out three people who I think lived great stories. Jesus lived a great story, and here's the catch. It's still going on. And he invites us into that story. Now, I know that much of what I've said this morning, some in this room believe wholeheartedly and some in this room don't believe wholeheartedly. When you have two competing truth claims, one that says one thing, the world is going to end today. Others that say, no, it's not. Don't panic. What do you do with that? You investigate, right? You begin to look into that. And depending on the claims made is how fervently you might investigate. Now, most of our lives are decided by high probability versus absolute proof. That doesn't mean that it's void of reason, thinking, and logic. It just means that oftentimes we can't get absolute airtight proof. Certainly with history, we can never go back and do that. But here's the reality. We all make 100% commitments not on 100% proof all the time. Unless you grow all of your own food, every time you eat a bite of food, you are making a 100% commitment without having all of the facts. Where was this food grown? How was it packaged? How was it shipped? How do you know for certain someone didn't do something uh, ill-intended toward that food before you put it in your mouth? Do you see what I'm saying? So you make these decisions all the time. Reason assesses and faith trusts. I want to invite the band up. We're going, to, we're going to sing a song here in just a moment. And while we sing the song, I want to challenge you to respond maybe in one of three ways. There's always more ways to respond, but here's three that I thought of. One is maybe you're ready to receive and have never done so this new gift of life. Jesus said quite simply, follow me. It's turning from a life of living your own way away from God and turning toward God. It's that simple. And it's a gift that must be received. To those who believed, he gives the right to become children of God. You trust in God's method of salvation, which is belief in his name. Maybe you're not ready to do that today. But maybe what you need to do is to investigate. If you aren't merely looking to support your already held beliefs, but you're really seeking the truth, you owe it to your search. You owe it to your search to go and look into the most widely circulated and widely scrutinized, and widely persecuted, and widely discussed book in all the world for all of time. That's the Bible. So you owe it to your search to go and look into that. Some of you may have said, well, I've tried Jesus, and it didn't work. But this might be a little bit like the guy who says, uh, you know, I'm not sick, and his buddy says, you are sick, you need to go see a doctor. Finally convinces the guy to go see a doctor, The doctor says, you're really sick. You need some medicine. And sometimes there's a guy that says this. Well, what does he know? And they walk away. And they say, "Uh, well, he's a doctor. And so what they say is, you know, I've tried medicine. Didn't work for me. There's some people who've tried Jesus in the same way as a sick guy who won't listen to the doctor. Maybe this morning you're a Christian. Here's my challenge to you. Maybe you would pray right now, even as we sing, and thank God that someone was a good Samaritan to you. Not only bandaging up your wounds, but sharing the gospel with you, sharing their life with you, sharing words with you, sharing their home with you, loving you into the kingdom of God.
And if you're a Christian, here's my challenge. Get up off your couch and walk in love toward your neighbor. Jesus' words to the lawyer are the same to us. He says, in essence, go and keep on doing it likewise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time of year. I'm grateful, God, for each person who's in here. I'm grateful, Lord, for the warmth of this building, for the warmth of the season. God, as we sing right now, as we respond to you in prayer, as we respond to you in singing, as we respond to you, God, in giving of offering and tithes, I pray that you'd be pleased with our heart. I pray, God, that you would bring us to a place of realization of who you are. We confess, Lord, that our mind is um, clouded and darkened unless you open our eyes and mind to spiritual matters. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.